Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grombacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, the strong and powerful Jerry Detweiler. Jerry, are you ready to do this? I am. Thank you. Excellent. Let's do this. Jerry is the education director for NAV, Inc., a free modern way for business owners to manage their business credit. She is an author and frequent contributor to various news sites, as well as a professional speaker, and I'm excited to have you on. Jerry, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why it is you do what you do. Sure. Well, I downsized to a tiny home this past year, so that was quite the adventure. <laughs> and I, I learned that I'm not ready for uh, RV living, which is what I thought I was going to do. I went from 2,000 plus square feet to uh, an RV, and I discovered I wasn't quite ready for that. So now I live in a uh, about 480 square foot home in a little resort community in Florida, and I am aspiring to travel more, but I'm going to have to take it a little bit more slowly than I anticipated. Nice. So you, okay, like like a legitimate tiny home, like like the ones I see on TV. Uh, it's it's actually I'm in Florida, so it's a manufactured home. Okay. It, it's in a resort community where there are a lot of RVers, a lot of snowbirds. Uh, I have neighbors from Canada and all over the country, and so it's it's not like the ones you see on TV. They're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> they are for sure are. But it's small. Yeah, and and I like to romanticize in my head that. I would do just fine in that environment, but when the rubber meets the road, I don't know that that would be the case. Yeah, I think it was a big adjustment, but I'm learning from it, and I'm I'm excited. Uh, what I am excited about is having more flexibility. My daughter went off to college, and that was part of the impetus for my husband and I downsizing, and I'm learning slowly that you can live with a lot less than you think that you need, and that's really, I'm still in the process, still have the storage unit I'm cleaning through, but I, I really am learning that uh, that you don't need all the stuff that most of us have. Uh, music to my ears right there. I, uh, I I stumbled upon minimalism some years ago, and I don't practice it as probably well as I should necessarily, but I think that there's a lot of value to examining how much stuff we really need. Yep, it's baby steps. <laughs> it It is baby steps, and like all things, incremental incremental is probably the way to go versus really radical change. So, excellent. Well, so... How did you get into um, the world of, 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 of credit and credit scores? I completely fell into it. After college, living in the D.C. area, fell into a job with an advocacy group. And at the time, it was the only place where if you wanted a low interest rate credit card, so this is pre-internet, you would send us $4 in the mail and we would send you a list of card issuers at low interest rates, most of them in Arkansas. And that's how people would uh, shop for a credit card at the time. But I got to do some really cool stuff. I got to work on the legislation that now discloses to consumers up front how much their credit card costs before they actually apply. That wasn't always there. I got to work on the legislation that revamped the Fair Credit Reporting Act. I got to testify in front of Congress. Um, but more importantly, you know, I got to talk to a lot of consumers over the years. So I've answered over 10,000 credit questions online for free. And I love uh, I love trying to help people point them in the right direction to at least find the information that they need. It's a lot easier now than it was, of course, you know, when I started in this in this arena. But I still find the same kinds of questions and challenges and problems cr crop up. And so I want to make sure that people get reliable information. They don't get misled. 
Got it. Well, I, 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 I know how important it is to inform people and help them to make educated decisions when and and wherever possible. Um, as as you were describing all that, a question that popped into my head was: Is credit a good thing or a bad thing? I think it completely depends on how you handle it. And in fact, I was just having a conversation with someone I recently met. And you always find they always have, there's always a credit story. I, it doesn't matter if I, <laughs> I can be doing a, an interview for a national show and the producer will come up to me afterwards and say, oh, I got this situation. So everybody has a credit story. <laughs> but I was talking to someone who uh, completely avoids credit cards, uh, very much in the minimalist movement. And it works, it's works, works for him. That's what works for him personally. Recently, in the past couple of years, I really got into playing the rewards game, the credit card rewards game. I earned some significant rewards using credit cards, and that's right for me right now. But I've had times in my life where I had no business with a credit card in my wallet, and it would not have made sense financially or otherwise for me to try to do what I'm doing now. So I really think it, it depends a lot on our circumstances and our personality and our approach to personal finance. Yeah, I appreciate that as well. And credit's neither good nor bad. It just kind of is. So in the hands of the right person, you get a lot of free stuff. And in the hands of the wrong person, disaster. So, well, what are some things that, that you wish that people knew or understood more about credit? Uh, I think I wish that people knew their rights when they have problems um, with their credit. And this is something that I encounter a lot where someone will get in a dispute over a bill. Let's say it's their cell phone bill or their cable bill or a medical bill. That's a big one. Over half of all collection accounts on credit reports are due to medical bills. And they don't realize how much leverage or power these companies have over our finances if we aren't very vigilant. And so I will give you an example. Uh, I um, was at a seminar where I was talking to real estate investors and one guy raised his hand. He said, yeah, he said, I'm a real estate investor. I, I paid cash for my open heart surgery. All right, cash for his open heart surgery. And a $50 bill slipped through the cracks. He didn't find out about it until it was with collections. It went on his credit report as a collection account, dropped his credit score like a rock. And as a real estate investor, you can, certain deals, you live or die by your credit score, right? So not always, but many real estate investors rely on their personal credit. And so those kinds of situations just drive me crazy. I want consumers to understand and and try to um, try to protect themselves so that they are at least unfairly uh, damaged by actions that affect their credit. So in order to do that, do they need to read the fine print? Well, I don't know because the fine print now has become very, um, at least since I've been in this industry, it's become very skewed toward the corporate interests. I mean, most most of your contracts have mandatory arbitration clauses, for example. But let's go let's go to the medical example. Uh, I would say for consumers, you know, not getting a bill is not a good thing, and this this is not uncommon. And I I hear these stories all the time. So I broke my hand in April. I went to the urgent care and then the emergency room. I here we are in July now when we're when we're talking and I have not received a bill yet from either of those providers. 
And you can bet I'm on the phone to them. I'm not just thinking, oh, well, I worry about it when it happens. I want to I want them to bill and I want to see that bill and I want to have the time to dispute it if there's a problem so it doesn't end up on my credit. Hmm. So there are certain things we can do to be proactive. With the cell phone bill, uh, I talked to someone recently at a dispute over a cell phone bill. It was uh, an expensive charge and they were debating whether to pay it because they didn't feel it was fair, like it wasn't right. And I'm like, you know, you, I, I think you should dispute it. I absolutely think you should dispute it. But I also don't want you to take to the point where it goes on your credit and the effect of that in your situation is greater than the money that you could have saved had you not paid that bill. So sometimes you have to make a decision, right? The Would I rather be right than rich decision? Mm-hmm. And you have to decide. And then you could then try to pursue it through other channels, maybe try taking them to small claims court, maybe, you know, filing a complaint with regulatory agencies, various things you can do. But keep in mind that they do have that these companies often do have a lot of leverage if they turn something over to collections. Got it. And I'm, I'm just shocked to hear that a lot of the fine print is skewed more in the favor of corporations and individuals, <laughs> Jerry. That's <laughs> shocking to hear that. Um, uh, just before I forget, you, you mentioned that many of the low interest rate cards were based out of Arkansas. Why Why is that or why was that? Well, that was because Arkansas was one of the few states to retain uh, consumer protection laws that were favorable in terms of it capping interest rates. And then the banks, the banks that were based in Arkansas had to abide by that law. So there was a decision, a Supreme Court decision back in, I think it's 1978 now, it was Marquette versus First Omaha. And it basically said um, interest rate caps at the state level only applied for banks located in that state. Other, Other states could export their interest rates. And so the first state that jumped on that bandwagon was South Dakota. And they attracted a lot of uh, jobs from uh, banks that located their credit card operations in South Dakota. So there were no interest rate caps. So they could export the no interest rate caps to other states. And that's why you see so many card issuers that were based in South Dakota and then a, a lot in Delaware, which also has very favorable laws um, when it comes to banking and uh, a a lower standard for consumer protection than some other states. So so you're I I talk to consumers who will say, well, shouldn't there be a a limit on these interest rates? Shouldn't there be a cap? It sounds like usury. Some states do have caps, but they only apply to the issuers located in that state. And so you get the workaround from most of these card issuers, which are national, which are based in either Delaware or South or, or uh, South Dakota. Fascinating. Okay, so is there a way or what is the way to select the best credit card? How, how does one go about doing that? So with credit cards, I think the key is to really be very, very honest about how you're going to use the card. I think we're all pretty optimistic. And most of us think when we get a credit card that we're probably not going to carry a balance, for example. But if you in the past have run into situations where you carry a balance, if you're if your income fluctuates uh, because of you, you maybe you freelance, you work from uh, you work for yourself or maybe you have a job that's commission based, for example, and your income fluctuates, then I would I would definitely have a card that would have either a low interest rate or low balance transfer that you could use in the times when that's really necessary for cash flow purposes. 
if you know that you can pay in full, your income's very steady and you feel very confident about it, then you can start looking at playing, you know, the rewards game and trying to figure out which rewards are going to be um, best for you. If you feel comfortable with that, I'm perfectly fine with someone saying, you know what, I'm avoiding debt. I don't want to go there. What I would say for someone who's doing that is just to understand that debit cards do have less consumer protection. They are compromised. Most issuers will make you whole, but you do want to stay on top of it and identify fraud or theft quickly because that money is coming out of your account. It's gone and it's got to come back in. The issuer has under federal law up to 14 days to provisionally credit you. And 14 days for some people could be a long time to wait for that money to come back into your account. And again, issuers vary on how quickly they do this. So I would just say if you're going to if you're going to avoid debt and use a debit card, then make sure that you're set up, you've set up alerts so you know what's going through the account. Spouses in particular uh, run into trouble with debit cards because they're both using it and they aren't necessarily always on the same page in terms of who's spending what. And that's where you end up with an overdraft or a situation where, oh, I thought you made that charge. No, I didn't make that charge. It turns out it was fraudulent. And that was a test charge to see how much we could take out of the account. Mm-hmm. So just be very vigilant if you're going to go that route. And I'll give one more tip when it comes to that. There is a service. Um, I, I've turned my husband onto this because he likes using his debit card. I personally prefer credit cards just because of the rewards I get but and the additional protection. But uh, there's a service called Debitize, and they will actually sort of turn your credit card into a debit card. So every purchase you make is put into a, a safe account, and then the bill is paid um, through Debitize. And that might be something to think about if you like the if you like the approach of not running up debt, but you also want to earn rewards on credit cards. Got it. Nice. Debitize. Cool. So you mentioned that medical debt is one of the biggest ways that, that, that people get into trouble with, with, with their credit. Um, how, do, how do student loans fit into that equation? I know that so much of news coverage is talking about how young people are graduating with mountains of student debt. Yeah. Well, it's not just young people. We're seeing the figures. Default rates are, are growing by in, in the older cohort because parents and grandparents have co-signed for mm. private student loans for their children or grandchildren. These debts can gen- – it's very difficult to discharge them in bankruptcy. That's one thing I would say is it's not impossible, and you will hear that you can't discharge them in bankruptcy. That is not true. And there are some areas in the country where that law is being challenged, and they're, 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 they are successfully discharging more debts in, in bankruptcy, student loan debts in bankruptcy. But it's a real problem. I mean it's a huge – multi-billion dollar problem for many young people, for, um, uh, for for adults who are trying to figure out how to save for their own kids' education while they're still paying off their student loans, and for parents or grandparents who might have co-signed, for a borrower who, who may not take it seriously, who may not, who may not care that they aren't, they aren't paying back the debt. And um, there's no easy answers with student loans, but there absolutely are um, resources that can at least help guide you through your options. And I'm going to give you two that I love and recommend. I don't have anything you know, to do with these companies, any of the ones that I'm mentioning. The only place I work right now is NAV. But um, student loan, uh, the student loan lawyer, Joshua Cohen, he has trained other consumer lawyers on um, – on student loan law. And so he has a directory of consumer lawyers who practice student loan law on his website. 
And the other is the um, National Foundation for Credit Counseling, which is the group that many people get credit counseling or debt management help through. They also have a, uh, a project for student loans, and I think it's studentloanhelp.org. I'd have to look it up real quick, so apologies. Um, but I'll certainly give you that for the show notes if you want, and we can share it there. But if you look up nonprofit student loan counseling, you will find their website, and they have counselors who can help you understand your options. The biggest risk with, and it is studentloanhelp.org. I just looked it up on my phone. Yep. Nice. Uh, the, the, the biggest risk with student loans is waiting until you're in a dire situation to get help mm. because many of the, many of the solutions that might be available, whether it is forbearance or deferment or an income-based repayment program, those um, take time for it to get processed. And there's quite a bit of paperwork involved. So you want to start the process earlier. So let's say your job is shaky. You want to be prepared to to, to fill out that and to make the payments um, while you're trying to get approved for it so that you don't end up in a default situation. If you end up in default, it's very bad for your credit, but it's also very expensive because of the fees that get added on. Got it. Excellent. Well, those are awesome resources. And like anything else, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So do a little bit of work ahead of time. And I, I had uh, I had someone, I had Alice Winery on the show talking about pre-college planning and just to, to echo those sentiments, do a little bit of legwork on the front instead of just blindly taking out a ton of student debt, try to figure out how to pay for it in advance. So. Oh, I can't, can't agree more. It's, it's a, it's a huge problem and it, it ties, it ties young people and often their parents or grandparents down for many, many years if you don't really look at it you know, proactively ahead of time. Well, Jerry, you've already given us a ton of great information and Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? I'm going to say tackle the hard thing. Uh, I, you know, I'm speaking to you and really enjoying our conversation, but I used to be terrified of public speaking and kind of got thrown into it through my work and ended up in Toastmasters and really became more comfortable. Everything worthwhile that I've done in my career has been something hard. Writing books, I've written five books, but you ask me now and I'm, I, the thought absolutely terrifies me. <laughs> so, so look at your finances and look at the hard thing, the thing that you're not tackling. And maybe you do want to downsize. Maybe you have that tiny house fantasy, but you think I can't yes. even clean out my basement, right? <laughs> Uh, those are the things that can really uh, just turn your turn your life in a completely new direction, hopefully for the better. I love it. That is great stuff. That definitely gets a come on. Come on. So thank you for that. And Jerry, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Well, you can find me at the NAV blog. So N is in Nancy, A is in Apple, V is in Victor dot com forward slash blog. And you can always email me. My email at NAV is webinars at NAV dot com. I love answering credit credit questions. So don't be afraid to ask. Awesome. Well, that was a, a ton of great information. So thank you so much. And Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Jerry your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Go to nav.com um, and find the blog. And I'll certainly list that as well as all of the other um, great websites that Jerry was talking about in the show. So thank you again, Jerry. Thank you, George. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we're all in this together.
What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on!